All righty, and as we prepare to get into this, let me give you one more announcement, and that'll be about March 22nd. What is on March 22nd? Ah, good. I like that. Cornhole and cookout. And we can call it also a family fun night. That's what we want to kind of advertise it as. It's a family fun night. So invite a family out. Bring your family out. Bring your children, your grandchildren if you have them, and invite your neighbors. Let them know about it. We will be doing cornhole. We will be having a cookout. We will be having a good time fellowshipping together outside before it gets blazing hot. And uh, now that we've had this time change, it's going to stay light outside for us, which is a blessing. So you be here at 5 o'clock and tell everybody you know. All righty? Good. I hope to see you there. Turning your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be in verse 14. As I prayed and studied and prepared this message this week, my anticipation was to preach verses 14 through 16. Uh, but the more I studied and prepared, I ended up stuck here at verse 14 where we're going to be tonight. And, and this is verse, though, is best understood in the context of verses 12 and 13 that we did last time. So I want to read those together. We're going to start in verse 12. Philippians chapter 2 says in verse 12, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And verse 14, our text tonight says, Do all things without murmurings and disputings. Let's pray. Let's pray tonight. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for how applicable it is to our lives. And Lord, we in our flesh attempt to justify ourselves. And that may be the case in some of us already in reading this, but I pray that as you've revealed it to me this week, so you would to the rest of us here, that, Lord, we need this to do all things without murmurings and disputings. And, and Lord, there are so many benefits from it that we'll look at in the future, but it does so many good things, and it's part of our obedience to you to obey this command. And, Lord, so I pray that you'd reveal our, our own hearts to us tonight as we look at your word, and, and we thank you for the power of it and for you uh, putting into this, this book here uh, your words of life that can change us, and we're asking for that. Uh, our heart's desire is that we would be moldable, be ready to be changed by you when we need to. And so I pray with these short words here we're going to look at tonight that you would reveal it to us and give us the humility to accept it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we read, did you find the connection? Which Hold on a second. Let me pause. Get your fingers ready tonight. We're going to turn to several places. I know we have a short verse here that we're looking at, but be ready. We will be turning around to a few places, so be ready to hold your place here and move around. As we did read, though, did you find the connection between the command of verse 14 and then the preceding verses we read? Did you see any connection there? It's back in verse 12 when we're told to work out our own salvation, the salvation that God has worked into us. We are to work it out in obedience to God. And the responsibility of a believer is that of obedience. It's one of obedience. That's our responsibility. And here, the Apostle Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit working through him, gives some specific exhortations about obedience that we are to exhibit. And we'll look at the first one tonight. And the first exhortation we find involves the requirements of obedience found in verse 14. 
And the first words of this sentence in the Greek text are the words, all things, all things. That's the first words. And that's also where the emphasis falls on this verse. And that is interesting because what exactly does all things comprise? What are we talking about here? Well, in context, remember, we are pointed back to the command that we are to work out our salvation, work out our salvation. And so expanding on that thought, we have here the command, the requirement that's, rep- that's put upon us to do everything we do in relation to that process of working out our salvation without two things, murmuring and disputing. But you may still be asking, what exactly is involved in that task, trying to, trying to avoid it, trying to justify already? And as much as it would be convenient to say it's only related to one part of life, the truth is that it cannot get much clearer than what is stated. It really does relate to all things. Working out our salvation touches every part of the life that we live. And so these two requirements we find should never be relegated to one section of our life. Not to just home, not to just church, not to just business, not to recreation, but all of them. And we have to beware of these things. Now, they're obviously not the only requirements that we find in Scripture for an obedient lifestyle. That's not what I'm saying here, but they are the requirements that we're given here in this context. And even though they're not the only ones, can I tell you a little secret? They probably play a much bigger role than we're aware of, a lot bigger of a role in our lives than we're aware of. Let's look at them. The first one, the thing that we're supposed to not do is not have murmurings. No murmuring. Look again at verse 14. Do all things without murmurings. You should be able to memorize this verse by the time we're done. I hope you've got it already. Do all things without murmurings. The word murmur means secret displeasure. But we'll see that it often does not stay that way. It soon becomes revealed and spread when we murmur. Let's see some other places uh, in the scripture that's used so we can get a better idea of it. I want you to turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. And I'll give you a second to get there. John chapter 7, verse 11. We'll be reading through verse 13. It says, Then the Jews sought him, that's Jesus, at the feast, and said, Where is he? And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him, for some said, He is a good man. Others said, Nay, but he deceiveth the people. Howbeit no man spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Here we find that word murmuring, and it seems to be an undercurrent, a whispering, a secretive grumbling that's going on. Turn one book away to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 and verse 1. It says, And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. There was a situation here at the Jerusalem church where they were caring for their needy widows, a good thing. And being that this church, though, was made up primarily of Hebrews, the Greek widows were being neglected. And that was what was going on here. That's where we pick up there in verse, in verse 1. Now, what happens when somebody feels that they aren't being treated, aren't getting what they feel they deserve? They don't feel like they're being treated fairly. What ends up happening? They grumble. They complain. They murmur. 
And we find no less from the people here, from the believers here. Last one I'll read for you. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 9. The verse says, Use hospitality to one another without grudging. The same word translated murmuring there. Use hospitality to one another without grudging. And here the apostle Peter is exhorting believers who were to love one another and as a part of that to show hospitality to each other. And in that, he says, it is not just enough to open your homes and to open your belongings and to open your tables to one another, but it must be done without murmuring, without complaining. Next, we'll see this word in its verb form, and, and we find it listed as an extremely serious offense manifested in the children of Israel during their wilderness wanderings. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6. I think you'll find this one very interesting. Here the Apostle Paul is describing the great privileges of the nation of Israel. But then he sets up that blessed nation as an example of what happens when people abuse those privileges. And we are a privileged people as well, being children of God. So look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 through 11. I may have given you the wrong chapter. Oh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 10. We are in 10. told you the wrong thing there. We'll get in 6 later. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 6 through 11. Now these things were our examples, the children of Israel, and what happened to them. To the intent, we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. This is a bad list of things. Verse 9, neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. And verse 10 says, neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition. Wow. Amongst a list of things that included idolatry, sexual immorality, and trying the patience of God with continual sin, to cap it all off, we find mentioned our word, murmuring or complaining. And in our minds, it doesn't seem to fit. That doesn't fit in that list. It's a small thing. But we're going to look at just how seriously God takes murmuring. Turn with me back to the Old Testament to Numbers chapter 14. Numbers 14. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. In chapter 14, we're going to read a couple parts of it, but starting in verses 1 and 2. It says there, And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness? Skip down to verse 27. How, this is God speaking now. How long shall I bear with this evil congregation which murmur against who? Me. That's key. I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel, which they murmur against who? Me. 
Verse 28, Say unto them, As truly as I live, saith the Lord, as ye have spoken in mine ears, so will I do to you. Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and all that they were num that were numbered of you according to your whole number from twenty years old and upward, which have murmured against me, doubtless ye shall not come into the land concerning which I swear to make you dwell therein, save Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. Verse 31 says, But your little ones, which you said should be a prey, they will I bring in. And they shall know the land which ye have despised. But as for you, your carcasses, they shall fall in this wilderness. Tough words there from the Lord. This passage reveals just how seriously God takes murmuring and complaining. And there are plenty more. But don't miss what we pointed out, the implication in verse 27. Back in verses 1 and 2, it said clearly that the congregation murmured against Moses and against Aaron. But in verse 27, God reveals what's really going on, the truth that ultimately they were murmuring against him. And you cannot escape the gravity of this situation. Verses 29 through 30 reveal that the murmuring was the primary factor that kept the children of Israel from entering the promised land. What they had waited their whole lives for, generations have come and gone, and there they were at the footsteps of, of entering that land, the great promised land that they'd looked forward to their whole lives. The door was shut because of their murmuring. Instead, they were going to go and die off in the wilderness. That is a serious, serious consequence because God takes murmuring seriously. And so after looking at this word in light of other scripture passages, particularly where it relates to the children of Israel, my desire is that we, too, would see murmuring, grumbling, complaining for what it is. But what makes it such a wicked thing, you might ask? Why is it so bad? Let's examine it. One preacher explained it well when he said, murmuring is born out of the twin sins of unbelief and rebellion, both of which are directed toward God. You say, wow, that's a heavy indictment. Let me break that down. You see, murmuring cannot exist apart from unbelief and rebellion. The unbelief exercised comes with the underlying thought that God either cannot or will not do what is best for me in my circumstance. That's where the root is. God either cannot or will not do what is best for me in my circumstance. When we complain, that's what we are saying. This is an affront to a holy and loving God who only does what is good for his children. He does what's good. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. God has a good plan for us. He allows the things that we end up facing in life. He's got a good plan. And so to murmur is rebellion and it's unbelief against Him. Following this unbelief, then rebellion comes into play the moment we open our hearts and our mouths to this thought of unbelief and begin to gripe and complain about the circumstances that we think should be different. Even when we don't think it's directed to God, like the Israelites who thought they were complaining against Moses and against Aaron, we are mistaken. Murmuring is indeed unbelief and rebellion against a holy God. This makes it so much more important that we recognize this sin in our lives and that we call it out for what it is. Rather than thinking it's just some innocent thing we find ourselves doing, Rather than passing it off as a natural reaction to the things that don't go our way, 
Rather than cleverly disguising our murmuring with comedy or treating it as a joke, which some of us are very good at, we must call it what it is, and that is sin before a holy God. To God, it's a disgusting exhibition of the flesh that he justly hates and takes extremely seriously. And we must see it that way or else we're in danger of continuing in our sin because we've convinced ourselves that it's something less. Let us not be called like that. Don't let that describe us. That, hey, murmuring, complaining, yeah, it's just, you know, it's something we do when things don't go our way. We can't see it like that. It's not something to joke about. You can see that from the Israelites. Murmuring and griping and complaining, they all come out of the heart. One that is discontent with whatever it may be they're murmuring about. And in essence, when we murmur, we're acting as if things would be better if we were in control. Whether we acknowledge it or not, we're saying, God, if I had control of this situation, it would have been better than this. I could have managed it better. This is a terrible spirit that none of us would want to have. We wouldn't say, oh, yeah, you know, I act like that. No, we don't want to do that. Yet we're often quick to murmur. We gripe about bad bosses and supervisors at work. We complain about the cold food or the portion size we get at the restaurant. The restaurant. We murmur about how long the pastor preaches. Don't do that. <laughs> we gripe about the air being too hot or too cold. We complain about the bathrooms not smelling scented or being overly scented. We gripe about our finances and why we don't have enough money to take care of the things we want. We complain about how unloving our husbands or our wives are. We murmur about all kinds of things without even thinking twice about it. Did any of those hit you? Because as I was studying this week, I said, my goodness, do I murmur. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon, he pointed out three things we should not murmur against. One, he said, the providence of God. Because we must always believe that he is good. He's told us so. Second, he said, one another. We must not murmur against one another, who we have inevitably will have disagreements with. But we must not murmur against one another. Third, he said, the ungodly world, which acts ungodly by its very nature. But we're still called not to murmur. E.M. Bounds, author, correctly pointed out that gratitude and murmuring never abide in the same heart at the same time. And yet, as followers of Christ, we are commanded to do what? Give thanks in everything, all things because that's God's will for us. And so we must choose to give thanks rather than to gripe, rather than complain, rather than murmur. It's said that a monk joined a, monas a monastery and took a vow of silence. After the first 10 years, his superior called him in and asked him directly, do you have anything to say? The monk replied, food bad. After another 10 years, the monk again had opportunity to voice his thoughts. He said, Bed hard. After another 10 years went by, he again was called in before his supervisor. And when asked if he had anything to say, he responded, I quit. <laughs> Supervisor's response, it doesn't surprise me a bit. You've done nothing but complain ever since you got here. <laughs> After 30 years. 
Don't let that describe us. <laughs> the, the things that are come out of our mouths should not be complaints and murmuring. A good rule to follow is what my mom always told me. If you've got nothing good to say, don't say anything at all. Say nothing at all. By doing so, we'll be on the right track of obedience by following the, requir the requirement to do all things without murmuring. Second thing we're told not to do. Verse, turn back if you're still got your Bibles there, Philippians. In chapter 2, verse 14, he says, Do all things without murmurings and disputings. No disputing. That's to describe us. No disputing. Now, what is this disputing that's paired with the sin, the serious sin of murmuring here? The Greek here can also be translated thoughts or reasonings, and it's referring to profitless disputings or arguments with others. You can think about it that way. And in their time and area, this disputing and arguing with others was almost seen as a good thing because of Aristotle and the philosophy that he promoted of questioning and people would spend their time debating and disputing different ideas and philosophies, sometimes just for the sake of arguing. And now you say, well, that was their time frame in their culture. It doesn't really apply to us. We don't spend time debating and arguing points of reason anymore. <laughs> as much as that sounds nice, unfortunately, I think it's something we'd just prefer to ignore instead of be confronted with. And so before we start justifying ourselves, wait, wait a minute. Have you ever gone into a discussion, turned argument with someone about politics? That's easy to fall into, yes? Have you ever gotten into a social media argument with someone? Geography is no longer a reason not to argue with someone. You can just do it on the internet. Have a good time. Disputing and arguing, whatever it is your point of view is. Do you believe strongly about certain issues that aren't necessarily spiritually beneficial? and find yourself disputing and arguing with others about them. Have you ever found yourself in a senseless argument with your husband or with your wife about something that really doesn't hold any value? I dare say if you've been married for any length of time that you've never found yourself disputing or arguing with your spouse out of pride. I wish your and my answer to all of these was no, but unfortunately, <coughs> It was not just their culture in Paul's day. It's a human problem, a problem that mankind has been involved in since sin entered into the world. And it's motivated by the vain glory that's mentioned earlier in the chapter. Look with me back in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. It says, There let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. Nothing. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Get your thoughts off of you and onto others. Verse 4, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. There's our solution, having the mind of Christ. Christ didn't make a point to go argue with people, to mindlessly argue with people. And we don't try to make a point either, it just comes out happens because of our sin nature. And yet, as we're going to see, if we have the Holy Spirit within us, we don't have to do that. We don't have to act like that anymore. The mind of Christ is the solution to our pride problem. But rather than take on the mind or attitude of humility that we ought to have, many times we find ourselves in strife and disputes. 
Book editor Maxwell Perkins, he once wrote, one of my deepest convictions is that the terrible harms that are done in this world are not done by deliberately evil people who are not numerous and are soon found out. They are done by the good, by those who are so sure that God is with them. Nothing can stop them, for they are certain that they are right. And sometimes we as Christians, we take on that pride to where I'm, I'm a Christian. I, I know this stuff. I know better than you. That's a popular meme going around right now if, you, if you're on the social media world. I know better than you. And we like to think that and then argue our points out. I know better than you. And this seeking to win an argument and be proved right is the pursuit of our own vain glory. And if you can remember back a few weeks ago when we looked closely at verses 3 through 5, we uncovered that the root of this is what I've mentioned, pride. It's pride. And it ultimately resembles the father of self-seeking, which is Satan himself, the one who started off with that great pride and has convinced us that it's worth something. But he doesn't want us to see it that way. Satan would much rather disguise it as a false stand for truth or as an innocent quest for wisdom. But beware, not all wisdom is from God. Do you know that? Not all wisdom is from God. There's a worldly wisdom. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Just a couple pages back, 1 Corinthians 3. I want you to see verses 18 through 20. It says here, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. Because that's worldly wisdom. And it's not worth fighting for. God's truth is worth standing up for. But our opinions, not so much. It's not worth disputing with others. Notice in verse 20, the word thoughts there, if you're looking at it. And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. That is the same Greek word translated disputings back in our passage. And the Bible says that to the Lord, these are vain. They're vain. They're worthless and futile. And as Christians, we are commanded to do all things without murmurings and without disputings. Let me make some final applications now in, the, in, this, in some specific areas. Imagine what would happen if every member of every household in here were to apply this tonight. If every man at the mission were to take these commands seriously and obey them. Imagine if every one of us did all things without murmurings and without disputings. That means for those of us that are husbands, who have pledged to love our wives as Christ loved the church, to nourish her and to cherish her. We don't gripe and complain that she's not more lovable or more thoughtful or whatever it may be that you're wishing for her or really for yourself. If you do this, it is a complaint against God's sovereignty who had her to be your wife and not somebody else's. And when you whisper or complain these things, even within our own hearts, it is unbelief and rebellion in the face of God. Very serious. What about you wives? The Bible commands you to be subject or to submit to your husbands in all things. 
Yet some in this room may be griping or complaining all the while about the leadership of their husbands. Just because you don't agree with him does not give you the right to insubordination or even complaint and murmuring. The Bible says, wives, submit to your husbands. And when you ignore that command, it's unbelief and rebellion that God hasn't done you right and wouldn't really expect you to submit to such an unloving man. This is not becoming of a Christian and must be seen for the wickedness it is. What about children here who are still under the authority of their parents? To do all things without murmuring and disputing means to not quietly rebel and complain against your parents and the rules they have posed on you, they've imposed on you that you feel are unfair or unjust. It's not your place because the Bible says children obey your parents in all things. There are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. None of them are included. And to do anything less, to even gripe about it with your friends or through a chat in a text or online is unbelief and rebellion against a holy God. What about our men at the mission here? You don't get to choose your meals or even your jobs and tasks you're assigned while you're there. Surely that's not an easy thing. There are rules you must abide by and authorities that you are to submit to. And do you find yourself murmuring and complaining about those things? It may sound like that meal was terrible and whoever cooked it's even worse. It may come out, I'm so tired of working this job in the kitchen or in the thrift store and I can't wait to get out of here. It may be, I wish the leadership didn't make all these rules we have to follow like we're kids. Friends, this is not the way to murmur and to gripe and to complain is to exercise unbelief and rebellion against a sovereign God who is working out a good plan for you even at the mission. It's part of God's plan for you. Submit yourself to it. Don't complain. Don't whine. Many of us have made a habit of these kinds of statements and attitudes that creep up in our hearts and often slip from our mouths before we even realize it. And as we get ready for our time of invitation tonight, can I encourage you with a truth? Even though the kind of attitude and heart of thankfulness or gratitude that we are supposed to exemplify is hard to maintain all the time, right? It's hard to keep that going and keep that up all the time. The truth is that if you've been born again, if you've had your sins washed by the blood of Christ, you can do right. And you can do right every time. You no longer have to sin. You're not bound by it. I'd like you to see this from the passage we were in earlier. Look back with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10. I'm going to start again where we were in verse 6. It says, Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, neither be ye idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and, destroy, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for in samples. They were examples and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. 
Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. Beware. In verse 13, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. Right in the context here of the things that they, were, they did for our examples, they did that were wrong, that we can learn from them, he says you don't have to. God will give you a way out. We find here not only the truth that what we face, so have those who've come before us. It's not new. And we can learn from them. But we also learn that we never face a situation, even so much as an urge, to murmur and to complain or to dispute with one another, which we cannot escape by the power of God. We can. We don't have to. And in Christ, we have all that is necessary for life and godliness, the Bible teaches. And we can do right. Is that encouraging to you? I murmur. I don't have to murmur, and I want to do better at that. I hope that's the same for you. The next time we're in Philippians, we're going to look at verses 15 to 16, where we'll find the glorious results of what happens when we obey these requirements. But for tonight, we've covered two requirements that are part of our obedience in working out our own salvation. And verse 14 again says, do, quote it with me, do all things without murmurings and disputings. I'd like to ask, how are you doing with that tonight? Has the Lord revealed to you the sinfulness of your own heart? As our pianist comes and begins to play, would you stand with me tonight? And with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I'd like to ask, maybe you're a husband in here, and maybe you've spent words and thoughts, even actions playing it out, murmuring, complaining, whining, griping, even disputing with or about your wife. That's wrong. That's sin. Maybe you're a wife and you feel like his leadership is, is too much and, and it's overbearing and it's unloving. And so you've murmured about it. It's not what we're called to do as Christians. Maybe you're a child and you know in your heart what you've done, the things that you've said that you've murmured and complained about the authority of your parents. I know I did. That's not what we're called to do as Christians. Maybe you're from the mission and, and you've been there. Maybe you've been there sometime, maybe you've been there a week. But all of a sudden, there's all these things being impressed upon you that you're supposed to do, and you've whined about it, you've murmured, you've complained, you've griped against the authority that God's placed over you. It's not what we're called to do. And if the Lord's impressed that on your heart and you need to get it right with Him, come up here, talk to the Lord about it. We're going to sing a song of invitation here in a minute, and I'd also like to extend one more invitation, and that would be to those in here who are unsaved. Maybe you've come and you say, you know, I've got problems with that, but my greatest need is I don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And I'm not sure I'm on my way to heaven. If that's you, would you please come out? Take me or Pastor Buddy, or if you're a, a, a lady, we have ladies to so speak with ladies. We'd love to take a Bible and show you how you can know for sure 
you're on your way to heaven. You can begin to practice this kind of godliness that the rest of us ought to be. As the Lord leads you tonight, as we sing, you come.